Okay. Welcome, Life Before Medicine begins right now. Life Before Medicine is an educational podcast that provides avenues to help you avoid the need for medical intervention. This is not a substitute for healthcare, and I am not your doctor. Today, we have a very special guest. We're joined by Dr. Andrea Rubenstein, who will be talking to us about chronic pain. Now, listen to this. Andrea Rubenstein received her bachelor's degree in economics from Mills College and went on to attend Stanford University School of Medicine, followed by a residency in anesthesia at Duke University. Now, she spent a few years in private practice before joining Permanente Medical Group, that's Kaiser, for those of you that don't know, in the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. In 2012, she became chief of the Department of Pain Medicine in Santa Rosa, where she oversees a full multidisciplinary team that works with patients experiencing all types of pain. She's been a leader in the area of using advanced pharmacotherapy, including buprenorphine and low-dose naltrexone. We'll talk about both of those for the treatment of pain. She's a sought-after speaker, and we got her today. She speaks on a variety of topics, from opioid safety and efficacy to improving pain through reducing opioid doses, and is nationally recognized in the area of buprenorphine for the treatment of pain. Dr. Rubenstein also has a strong interest in research and holds a research chair at her facilities, at her facility at Kaiser. She um, is also involved in research looking into medication safety and specifically opioid risk and tapering practices. She's been uh, instrumental in helping a variety of organizations, including MedCal, Blue Shield of California, UC Davis, and several healthcare safety net organizations. We are so pleased to have you here. Such an impressive pedigree. And I will disclose right up front, you're also my sister. And uh, maybe the smartest person I know. So I'm very grateful that you would take the time to talk to us today about this important issue of chronic pain and pain management. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm really honored to uh, be selected to be a guest on your podcast um, and to get to spend a little time with you. So that's great. Um, and I'm excited great. to talk about this. Well, it is a very interesting topic. Now, from my research preparing for our podcast today, I was astounded to find this statistic. The statistic speaks of the prevalence, how common chronic pain is in the United States. And the, that figure has been quoted at 25%. One in four Americans experiences chronic pain. And that is absolutely extraordinary. I think we should kick this off by just defining clearly for our audience exactly what is chronic pain. What does that mean? How do you know if you have it? Um, well, let's say what it isn't. So chronic pain is not just pain that lasts for a long time. Chronic pain is something different. I mean, it, it, to qualify, it needs to have been present for, depending on who you're talking to, over three months or over six months. And it, it carries with it um, usually a, a diagnosis of something where the pathology, what's actually wrong, is difficult to identify. 
um, and obviously not in all cases, but if you break your leg and you have pain, that's not chronic pain. That's acute pain. And that pain serves a purpose. That purpose is to tell you, stop using this leg. It's broken, right? Um, but chronic pain are signals that are telling you something's wrong, that something, there's some kind of damage. But when we look, we don't see what that damage actually is. Now, sometimes we do see some damage, but the but what separates chronic pain from pain that would just be related to that damage is that the experience of that pain is um, greater and affects more aspects of your life than that pathology could explain. So I think that's easier with an example. So back pain is probably one of the most common chronic pain conditions that we see. And I may look on an MRI and say, oh, you, you have some arthritis. Yes, you do. Or you have some degenerative changes. Yes. But what I'm hearing when I listen to the patient cannot be explained by just that. It, their experience is broad reaching and encompasses just about every aspect of the way they live their lives. Mm-hmm. So it is defined not just in terms of having pain that lasts three months or longer, but rather the social and personal, uh, spiritual, economic right. impact that pain right. is having on your life. Okay. Right. Okay. Exactly. It's affecting mood. It's affecting sleep. It's affecting uh, choices around self-medication, whether that's with medication or even with food. It's affecting how you see yourself as in and your own health. It's it's really multi uh, factorial in the way that it affects you. Mm-hmm. And and so when you're approaching this, I, I noted from your bio that uh, you are leading a full multidisciplinary team approach to managing chronic pain. Can you tell our listeners, what does that mean? What is a multidisciplinary approach? So, um, and this is something probably outside of um, certain academic organizations or certainly outside of the Kaiser Permanente system, which is a very different medical model, um, you may not see. But the gold standard for treating the majority of chronic pain conditions says that it isn't enough to just give medication. It isn't enough to just do a nerve block. Because of the way this is affecting people, they need multiple disciplines. They need physical therapy. They may need psychotherapy. They may need um, cognitive behavioral therapy. They may need uh, s- to learn actual didactic type of skills on how to manage this. Maybe they need acupuncture um, and they certainly need a fitness program. So there's a whole panoply of providers that work with me that take care of my patient population. And I so see. We, we cater that very individually to each patient based on what their particular needs are. Sure. In general, how receptive are your patients to this? I mean, they show up to get their pain fixed, you know, 
and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, get me back in the game or just fix it. And you, now you're telling them they got to do all these other things. What kind of resistance are you getting from patients for participating in a, uh, you know, visits with you and physical therapy and maybe a nutritionist, maybe a psychotherapist? Are people willing to do that in general? Some are, you know, some aren't. There's no one type of patient here. Um, But what we know is that people who go and do our comprehensive program do better than the patients who don't. So we'll meet anyone anywhere and try to work with them within what they're willing to do. But well, break that out for me. Is it that this multidisciplinary program is more effective than other programs would be? Or is it just that the personality type that's willing to go that distance is also the personality type that just tends to get better? Right. And that's a, that's a really good question. And I really think it's the program because we will have patients who have been basically bedridden um, for years who will come in and many of these patients work with us for years and it, they may be working with me alone and not willing to yet participate in, you know, seeing a therapist or doing physical therapy or doing any of our classes um, for, for a while. They may not be ready. There's a readiness that has to happen. But once that patient is ready, the changes that they're able to make in both the understanding what their pain actually is on a on a physiologic level and what's actually happening and separating that from what their experience is combined with getting people up and moving because obviously if you're in pain the last thing most people want to do is move is and uh you know when i say move let me I'm, I'm talking about a type of exercise, but I, I hate that name and uh, that word and so do many patients. And what, what we're really battling is deconditioning and trying to get patients reconditioned through movement. Mm, mm, mm. And once any given patient says, okay, I'm ready today, today is the day I'm ready to do this. That's really where we see, regardless of personality type, that's where we often see the biggest leap in improvement in quality of life and um, improvement in, in overall function. Do you know, just not to belabor this point, but do you know of any research that looks at the value of conducting a personality inventory at the initiation of care that might dictate, you know, how to approach their care specifically? This is a person whose personality would suggest that they're going to do better with you know, two interventions or, or three or none? Um, I'm not aware of any literature on that. That's not something I've, I've looked at, but, um, when patients are referred to me, their first appointment is actually with, um, someone called a care manager. And these care managers are, uh, either licensed clinical social workers or masters in with of um, family therapy and so they're therapists themselves and they do do an intake and they do sort of assess and work with the patient and then our whole team sits down once a week and goes over these people and tries to to create a program designed for the needs of that person based on you know what the intake is 
and and what the patient says they want and what yeah. how we feel they would do I, th best. I think it would be so interesting to issue that inventory that just assesses relative optimism versus pessimism and then tracks outcomes just based on that one particular metric but um, we'll have to wait on that research. It yeah, like. you know, it's interesting. One of our um, care managers just did a very informal study of people who were, who, who were participating in one of our classes. And she asked one question to them on the first day of class and the same question on the last day of class. And the question was this, and it, it's a subtle question. How confident are you that you can manage your pain condition. So you know, you'll note she didn't ask what's your pain, right? On a scale of one to 10, which is usually what's asked. What she's asking about is confidence. And what we saw was at the end of an eight week program, almost universally, everyone had gained confidence that they had mastery over this problem rather than being a victim sort of of this problem. So I think whether they're optimistic or not at the be going into a program, optimism is definitely, optimism and confidence are definitely results that can come out of a program like this. Yeah, interesting. You know, we have a podcast coming up into September with a psychotherapist named uh, Tom Lavin, whose work I've been reviewing, and he taught, he's an expert in dealing with a couple of different conditions, grief and anxiety, but one of his statements about dealing with anxiety is not to relieve yourself of your anxiety but to do what you need to do despite your anxiety living with it to a degree and pushing through as a way of actually in the end relieving the anxiety so you know not right. doing something because of your anxiety switching it around and doing something to uh, right exactly uh, exactly interesting how similar the conditions seem to be now, let's talk just a little bit about trauma and the role of trauma and pain and, and, and the importance of treating trauma. Right. This is a, an understudied area, but anyone who works with this patient population works day in and day out with people who are suffering from chronic pain notices pretty quickly that there is an overwhelming number of patients have a significant history of trauma. That might be very early life trauma. It might be later in life trauma, but it's almost always multiple traumas. And when We're I say trauma, I don't just trauma. mean, you know, um, violence, but for instance, an illness at an early age for a child is a very traumatic experience to be separated from your parents and hospitalized. So that's one. Obviously there is, um, you know, childhood abuse, sexual abuse, there are sort of the, the more, um, the types of trauma that we more often think about. But multiple traumas um, seem to change the way the nervous system functions um, and keeps it at a level of high alertness that is related to um, pain sort of becoming chronic. Now I want to be clear here. I cannot say it's causative. I don't think, I don't think we know that that's true. It's just, there's this relationship between having had uh, usually multiple traumas and then going on to 
develop a pain condition that maybe should have gone away. You were in a car accident, you know, you were injured in that accident, and in eight out of 10 people, they would have healed and gone on, and two out of those 10 people develop a chronic syndrome around that where it does not go away, even though when we look at imaging, everything looks fine. And this can be really frustrating for patients because most doctors will say, you know, your x-rays are fine, your MRI is fine, this is all in your head. And that's not true, although I sometimes will jokingly say to patients who will ask, are, do you think this is all in my head? It's like, well, if we cut your head off, your pain will go away. Yes. Well, exactly. Right? In a sense, in a way, everything like, where is else in your are you head. Right? Everything it, right. is in your head. So, um, but it isn't just in your head. It also lives within your body and, and uh, our trauma therapists really work with people in a way that's around releasing that trauma from the body, that the body remembers the trauma and the mind may have processed it and said, I'm over that, or that was then and this is now, but that trauma can still kind of reside in the body and set you up to have these kinds of painful conditions. Right. And that's certainly something, you know, as a urogynecologist, when we deal with patients with chronic pelvic pain, oftentimes related to a high-tone pelvic floor, we have long known there's a clear association with a history of sexual abuse, sexual trauma. And, um, and, and so I just wonder if there's a window when this potentiation um, event occurs, where this trauma occurs that potentiates a chronic pain problem either at the time or later in life, is, is it more likely to occur if, you're, if the uh, trauma occurs when you're at a younger age versus later in life? Or is it, can it be any trauma anytime? You know, that's a, that's a well-understudied area. I don't know. Um, I, I tried to find a paper uh, to quote, and I, I can't quote this paper. I apologize. I, um, but there was a study looking at um, people who were traumatized in New York City on 9-11. And obviously, this was a perfect population of people to study because millions of people had the exact same trauma on the exact mm. same day. Yeah. And some of those people went on to develop these chronic medical issues, not just pain, a whole panoply of different types of pulmonary problems and um, other types of medical issues. And when they looked at this population, what they noted was if 9-11 was your first trauma, you actually did okay. You probably recovered and did okay. But if this was your second trauma or subsequent to multiple traumas, um, that's where we started to see these chronic conditions coming up, these, these chronic things. And it, it made me think, hey, that's kind of how the immune system works. If you're going to be allergic to a bee sting, it's not the first bee sting that you react to that one kind of comes and goes it's the second one in other words the first trauma sets you up and the second trauma kind of explodes the the immune system and that's not to say that this is an immune system problem it's just that it's interesting that it seems like maybe and this is you know one study and it's you know a retrospective study so uh, take it for what it's worth but but it's certainly in my experience, um, that is often what we see, that 
someone had early life trauma, went on to do very well, leads a full life. One day they're in a fender bender with very minimal physical injuries and everything just kind of falls apart, mm, right? That's mm. kind of a classic scenario for patients that we see. So I'm, I think we need to look at, we, there definitely needs to be more research in this area. It's a fascinating area it to really research is. is what is the effect of, of really first and then subsequent trauma on um, health overall, pain, pain just being the area that I look at. Right, right. And what, looking at your patient population, I mean, I don't think you mean to imply that all patients with chronic pain have a history of trauma. Certainly that's not true. I mean, there's many no. organic reasons why you might right. have chronic pain, like severe uh, osteoporosis affecting the spine in a way that just creates that pain. But for those that don't have an identifiable um, physical explanation for their pain complaints, what percentage of those patients can you identify in history of trauma? In? Right. I mean, I am going to... You know, this is a spitball, but I would say probably we can identify a significant trauma in about 75% really? of the patients that we see. Now, the the other question is, well, what's the incidence of trauma? Right, life in is the, traumatic. In right. the people, life is traumatic, and we all have <laughs> some kind of trauma if we look hard enough. So, um, so I'm not sure, you know, kind of where that is, but it is a notable it does play a notable role in the uh, stories, in the narrative stories of my patients, and I can, the stories that they tell themselves. Right, and I'm really starting to understand why this multidisciplinary approach is critical, because someone that doesn't have an identifiable organic cause for their chronic pain might well benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy, might well benefit from other things, whereas someone right. that, that has a... Um, um, a radiculopathy, a nerve compression mm -hmm. type of pain related to a um, um, disc disease might benefit from physical therapy. And so people right. need to have access to various avenues depending on right. what their specific needs are. But having said that, of your patients, how many of these patients are taking medication for pain? Well, certainly the overwhelming percentage are taking some kind of medication because uh, as a specialist, all of these patients are coming from a primary care setting, usually referred to us. And the primary care doctors are going to try their best to treat this um, with the tools that they have. And so that usually includes some kind of analgesic medication, whether that's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or, you know, some medication for nerve pain, you know, all it is very unusual to see a patient who arrives to see me in the office and is on no medication at all. Right. Almost the only way that happens is if you get a patient who's like, I am not interested in being on medication. we got to do this a different way. Isn't right? it true? And there are if you ever go to the doctor and you tell them I'm not taking medication, they do really, that's amazing. <laughs> Regardless of whether you have pain or not this day and right. age, it's a miracle. If you're not supporting big pharma in some way, there's gotta yes. be something we need, you know, Poops too soft, yes. poops too hard. Like it's, it's got to be something we can give you. It's I will I will share a personal story um, that you will remember all too well. But in 2015, I had spinal surgery for a, an an issue. I underwent a spinal fusion, and um, I was taken into the operating room. And this was a 
surgeon that I also knew as having been his anesthesiologist. And he was reviewing my chart in the OR before they put me to sleep. And he says, is this right? You don't take any medication? And I said, yes, that's correct. And he announces to the entire operating room, everybody, look, here is somebody who's not on any medication. And people were shocked. I mean, that's how rare that is. Right, yes. right, right. That is, a, that is a comment on itself. And I was mildly humiliated while being laying there on the gurney waiting to go to sleep. Yeah, so. yeah it's better to be the doctor, don't you think? Yeah, always better to be the doctor. So you got these groups of patients, some with identifiable organic physical causes for their pain, some that don't but maybe have, are likely to have a history of trauma. Is your approach different for those in terms of starting medications, for instance, opiates or other types of medication? It, it's Medications have to be thought of on an absolutely individual basis. On every single patient is different. And the risks... Every drug has risks, and every patient and every drug, whether it's a Tylenol all the way to, you know, something like morphine, has a risk, and then you have to weigh that against the benefit. And so, um, for sure, if someone has a neuropathy, for instance, a very common problem, it's neuropathy is most commonly seen in the feet or lower legs, um, it can be from a number of things, but diabetes is a very common one. And we do have pretty good um, medication to quiet down the, that neuropathy. And um, that can really improve the way people function because, uh, you know, when your feet are burning all the time, it's pretty hard to have a good life. But the, those drugs come with significant side effects and you've got to really have that conversation around, okay, we can quiet this down and these are the drugs that do it. And these are the side effects you can expect to see weight gain, drowsiness, cognitive slowing, um, et cetera. You know, is that, are we willing to undergo that, uh, that risk benefit ratio? And that's a decision that should ideally be co-made with the doctor and the patient, right? In other words, the doctor should not be saying, oh, you have neuropathy, let me give you this pill, it will fix your neuropathy. That may be true, but it, but it will come at a cost. And mm -hmm. um, I, you know, with a, particularly with drugs for nerve pain, they tend to, not in everyone, but in a lot of people, cause really significant weight gain. And if you don't disclose that, and you, then you don't see a patient back for six months or a year, um, and they've gained... 30 to 60 pounds. Now they've got back pain. Have you really helped this patient? So yes, you got their nerve pain under control, but you know, now they're, they're much, much heavier. They're not exercising they're in, and they feel worse about themselves. Have we really made them better? So you can't just fix the pain. You got to fix the patient right. if you're going to use medications. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, part of that phenomenon is the result of the hyper-specialization of medicine. We get so focused on our little area of clinical expertise that we kind of lose sight of, of how a side effect might create a problem in someone else's little area of expertise, but it's right. one person that is experiencing both problems. And, and, and you know, and it, it really, I think, emphasizes the need for a, a competent quarterback 
primary care provider that could somehow wrangle this in, but it just seems so rare that that kind of engagement will be available to people. You know, you know, even f- even if you're a physician and you go to a primary care doctor, like you don't right. really feel like that person is a um, actually coordinating care, right? right? They're letting the right. the specialists and care for for their patients. You as know, they need the, to. the the discussion around the use of one medication. We're talking about starting one medication. That can be a 30-minute discussion, right? And that's outside the scope right. of what most primary care doctors have for the entire visit. Now, okay. I'm really blessed in the work that I do is that, you know, I have our, you know, I spend an hour with a patient. So we have time to say, all right, this is what we're going to try today. Here's the pluses. Here's the minuses. Here are what I think your risk factors are. This is how I think this could go. You know, what do you think about doing this? Right, right. You know, a while back, we watched the pendulum swing, as it does so often, at least in the the United States, where, at least in the state of Nevada, um, a great deal of measures were taken to increase the regulation of opiate prescription writing. And consequently, lots of patients that had been taking opiates no longer had those opiates available to them. And I... This was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I think, something like that. And I said to, was it? Yeah, it was, it was, was long, when the CDC changed the, the guidelines. But it was so clear to me at that time is that if we do this, it is going to provide an incredible business opportunity for the illicit drug market. And look around. What do we mm-hmm. have today? Fentanyl yeah. exposure. Exploding, the availability of opiates, uh, street-level opiates, exploding. Yeah. And they're not regulated. You don't know from dose to dose how much, from pill to pill, what kind of dose you're getting. And, and people are overdosing at a, at a much greater rate. So in an, in an attempt to make healthcare safer, we've actually potentiated a more dangerous situation. What are your thoughts on the regulation of opiates and how how that uh, should be handled at the level of the provider? Well, it's a mess, and it's something that I've been very passionate about for my whole career. You know, step one, in the 90s, prior to the 90s, you know, unless you had cancer, you were never offered an opiate. And we were, and many, many, many people spent end of life, even late stage cancer, dying in pain. So that wasn't right. And then in the, in the 90s, we saw that kind of rebound with this idea that pain was the fifth vital sign, and we had to treat it. And what we knew then was that opiates worked very well to treat pain, in acute pain, because that was all that we used them for, right? We give them after surgery. So for acute pain, they're highly, highly effective for a short period of time. Doctors made a, a thought error and said, well, okay, we have to treat pain. Opiates work. We'll use opiates to treat pain without ever doing the research to see if opiates work in the long term. And in fact, what we know is that they don't. Um, but people become highly dependent on them. And then it becomes very difficult to, for the, from, from the user of the opiates point of view, from the patient's point of view, 
to tell if the drug is working or not because they feel so bad when they don't take it because people become physiologically dependent on these drugs pretty quickly. And so they'll I'll often have a conversation with them that says, I don't think this drug is working for you. And they'll say, oh, I've tried stopping and it's worse. And that's not really the right question or you know the right response because of course it's worse because that's withdrawal. But I think we then, you know, you're exactly right. The pendulum swang back very, very hard. And the CDC came out with some guidelines. And unfortunately, those guidelines were were misinterpreted by many people. And I actually, you know, was one of the people who read the guidelines in the original form, in the original publication, rather than just the summary that got passed around as the press release or or brought up as bulleted talking points. And even I missed the subtlety of what they were saying, which was we've identified that risk associated with the use of opiates chronically goes up with dose. So higher dose, more risk. And what they actually said was try not to let your patients get above a certain dose because risk goes up pretty rapidly above that dose. What that got interpreted as was, oh, dear me, my patient is on way more than that. I better get them down to that less risky dose, right? But but that's not what they were, but there's no evidence for that at all. Because in fact, when we removed opiates, either by tapering people down or in many cases, sadly, just just pulling the drug away and letting people go through withdrawal, we actually created harm. So two years later, the CDC made a clarification to this that said, stop, you know, we did not say if you're on above this number, which they is 90 equivalent, any amount that's equivalent to 90 milligrams of morphine, regardless of which drug it is, they can all be translated into how much morphine that would be. Daily? Yes. 90 milligrams of morphine daily is a huge amount of morphine. Well, orally, it's not the same as IV, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a three to one. So that would be 30 milligrams of IV. You're probably, you know, as a surgeon and in the hospital, you're much more used to seeing morphine that is true. dosed in, in IV form. So 90 milligrams of morphine is kind of a medium sized dose. It's not low, it's not high, um, but it's, you know, that, but risk goes up after that. But that, but they clarified that does not mean if you were on 200 milligrams of morphine that we should taper you down to below 90. But unfortunately, the genie was kind of out of the bottle and everybody was cutting people off. They were make, you know, insurance companies were saying right. we're only going to cover this much regardless of what your physiologic need is. Um, and so we, we harmed patients once again. We harmed them the first time by starting opiates on people without knowing whether this drug was going to work year after year. That was problem number one. And problem number two, then we harmed them the second time when we just across the board started reducing um, doses on people. And we ended up nationally reducing opiate prescribing between 20 and 30% between 2015 and 2018 or 19. But as you clearly pointed out, deaths during that time continued to rise. So all in all, not the best outcome from uh, of a very real problem, very, very real problem. We don't want people to die and these drugs are dangerous. There's no doubt about it. So do you think it's time on opiates or dose that is most 
influencing the development of dependency and the waning effectiveness of the drug? It's, it's multiple things. Okay. So it's, um, it's dose in that at, as doses go up and it's normal that people develop tolerance to these drugs. So what used to be a very effective dose for analgesia over time becomes less effective. And then you have to make a decision. Um, do we increase the dose to get it to be effective? And, you know, we did for many years, and this is how people ended up on these very, very high doses. We don't tend to do that anymore because if you become tolerant to 40 milligrams of morphine equivalent and we raise your dose to 60, you're going to become tolerant to 60 and we're going to be right back where we started from. So avoiding tolerance is, is a, is a, is a good end goal. So we'll just, we'll come back to that one. Um, But as the dose gets higher and higher, we start to see a phenomenon called opiate induced hyperalgesia, which is a great big fancy term that means that the opiates are causing pain and they're treating it and causing it and treating it and causing it and treating it and causing it and treating it and causing it. And and people become hypersensitive so that something that would not have hurt, you know, you, you stub your toe, whatever that might be uncomfortable for a couple of minutes becomes horrifically painful and lasts for a long time. And that's a function that of the opiates that we still don't mechanistically really understand, or at least I don't really understand it. Um, and that's, so that's a function of dose. So, um, and then the longer you're on the drug, the m- the more physiologically dependent and deep set that pattern becomes. And, As you're on these drugs longer and longer and at higher and higher doses, your body's metabolic ability to get rid of the drug, which is the, which is its job, um, can change. And the time between your doses, we tend to tell people, well, take this four times a day. That would be every six hours. But many of my patients are actually going into withdrawal at hour number four, four and a half, right? So now we have this withdrawal phenomenon going on in between their dosing, which makes it impossible for them to have a, any, for, to ever have a good day. You can't have a good day if you're going in and out of mild opiate withdrawal. And many patients don't even realize that's what this is until you say, hey, you ever notice your nose is getting stuffy or your eyes are watering and maybe you think it's allergies, but it seems to go away the next time you take a dose (laughs) or are you yawning all the time? Um, Or you feel like you can't get comfortable in your own skin. You have this kind of weird, anxious irritability um, and it goes away when about, you know, 30 to 45 minutes after a dose, right? When you point this out and what's happening, people are suddenly aware that they're going into withdrawal over and over and over again. So it's a, it's a combination of dose, how long you've been on the drug, how your body's metabolizing the drug, how the drug is being prescribed, how many times a day, et cetera. Right. You know, I have a simplistic surgeon's um, understanding of how this might all come to pass. We know that chronic opioid exposure has an effect on the abundance of opiate receptors in the body. So a, you take a drug, a drug binds to a receptor either on the cell surface or inside the cell, and as a consequence of that receptor binding the drug, it exerts an effect on the cell. 
And if, if taking a drug has the effect of down-regulating how many receptors you have, it makes sense that with time you'd need to take more drug to achieve the same effect, which further down-regulates that. And I'm sure it's much, much more complicated than that, but that's my simplistic understanding of it. But I'll tell you something else. I don't treat chronic pain, but I believe that even with short-term use of opiates, 7 to 10 days... At the end, uh, like you do a, a procedure, uh, an abdominal surgery, and they have an abdominal wound and it's super sore, and they give them a prescription for pain medication. Maybe they take it for 10 days. But at the end of 10 days, I know I've seen patients demonstrating opiate withdrawal after just yes. 10 days of taking opiates. So I think this isn't something that happens after being on the drug for six months or a year or six years. It can, I think it can happen very quickly. Am I right about that? Yes, and that is hardly a simplistic uh, model of how opiates work. That is exactly how opiates work, right? Even so, a surgeon can understand. <laughs> that is a that is a, <laughs> a second year medical school pharmacology lecture right there, dear brother. So, um, some people do develop dependency very, very quickly. That is absolutely true, and when that drug is then removed, one of the things that can happen. Um, is that one of the withdrawal symptoms that I, people can get is a return of the pain for which the drug was originally prescribed, which makes them go, something's wrong, Dr. Crawford. Right. You did this surgery on me, and I was doing okay, and then I stopped my pain medication, and now I, it's, it's back. It's there. And it, it is the astute person who says, no, nah, probably, you know, you check and you make sure everything looks good. No, this actually could be part of a withdrawal syndrome. And we just have to kind of help and support you through it instead of saying, oh, my gosh, I don't know what's going on. Everything looks fine, but you have pain. So let me just refill that. Right. But it's not just pain they complain of. Right. Anxiety seems to be a yeah. huge component huge. of it. Yeah. And if you've just had a major operation, which is a trauma, a very controlled yes. trauma, but a trauma nonetheless for the patient, that burst of anxiety can be very frightening, very disturbing, right. and puts you right back in the doctor's office saying what you said, something's wrong. Right. Exactly. And anxiety is a component of withdrawal. And again, in most people who've been on only seven to 10 days, that is pretty short lived if you write it out, you know, a few days, a week. Um, but if it presents as anxiety, you, then the well-meaning provider sometimes starts a patient on an anti-anxiety drug. Right. And the problem with starting people <laughs> on an anti-anxiety drug is those are also extremely physiologically dependence forming. And the removal of those drugs then just makes the anxiety worse. So in a lot of times, you know, when I lecture on how to manage both opiates and, you know, anti-anxiety drugs like uh, benzodiazepines, Valium, Ativan, is put Xanax the pen down. The yeah. Put the pen right. down. If you want to help this patient, help right. them emotionally through what's going on, educate them, let them understand this is short-lived. It happens sometimes. We got to get you through this but you don't want to cover it up with right. something that basically kicks the can down the road. Okay, so those patients all tell you to go screw yourself, basically. When, <laughs> I'm guessing, right? That I mean, you're not going to keep giving them what they need to avoid feeling terrible in the short term. I would guess they'd want to find someone who will give them what they need. Right. 
You know, patients seem to have an agenda now walking into the doctor's office that didn't exist 50 years ago. And if you don't give them an opinion that's concordant with what they already know, right, if you don't basically sign on to their echo chamber, then you're not a good doctor, right? They'll find another doctor and they might even complain about you. Well, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is just like any other relationship. You're not going to have 100% of people like you. You're just not. And if you're doing your job, some patients are going to work better with another doctor. And that's fine. And that's one, you know, I work for a very large organization. We have hundreds of people who, you know, patients can see uh, at the primary care level and, and less at the specialty level, but still, you know, it's important to um, recognize, you know, if someone wants to work in a different way, then they, they may need to find a different physician. But what often happens is physicians feel enormous pressure to make the patient happy. And we have to take us, in my opinion, we have to take a step back and remember our job is not to make the patient happy. Our job is to make the patient better. Right, right, right. right. But you know and what? Certainly not to make them worse. Right? Happy patients leave happy, the office and stop patient. asking yeah. questions. Yeah. It takes yeah. longer and ain't nobody got yeah. time for that, yeah. right? So I, I will, you know, I keep my uh, self clearly focused on am I making this patient better? And the, the sort of hallmark for that when it comes to prescribing medications is any medication, and it doesn't matter if this is for blood pressure or for pain or anything, is to ask yourself, is what the drug is doing to the patient more than what the drug is doing for the patient? And if the answer is yes, they probably shouldn't be on that medication, yeah. right? And so if it's interfering with their interpersonal relationships, their work, their ability to function fully, including managing their other medical problems and comorbidities, that's a a sign that that drug is causing more problems to that patient than it's helping them. Right. All right. Now, you, you talked earlier about avoiding tolerance, and I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about that and also how tapering an opiate can actually make people better. Right, right, right. Two very important um, concepts. So, interestingly, we have one opiate in our arsenal that seems to not cause tolerance to develop. So, if you put a patient on this drug, and you get it to work, and it's treating their pain, and this would be in a patient where the use of an opiate is appropriate. So let's weed out people who where it's not appropriate or where the risks are greater than the benefits or what the drug is doing to the patient is more than what the drug is doing for the patient. But in a subset of patients, we do need to use opiates to manage their pain. And in that population, there is one opiate that if it works on day one, will probably be working just as well well, I can only say 15 years because I've only been using this medication for 15 years, but I have patients who've been on it for 15 years and it's working every bit as good as the day they started. And they're either on the same dose they started on or, they've act, or they're actually on a lower dose. Well, what Very is unusual. this magical drug? And this is buprenorphine, um, which is often goes under the brand name. Uh, it has several brand names, but people 
usually know this as the drug Suboxone or Subutex. It also has another brand name called Belbuca and another brand name called Butrans, several different formulations. But there's something very unique about this drug in that it acts at the same place all opiates act at, gives pain relief, great, but it acts at a whole bunch of other places in the body. And the phenomenon that you talked about, right, which is you put a drug in the body and then it binds at a receptor. And if you put a lot of drug in the body, the body reduces the number of receptors. And that's how you, that's one of the mechanisms through which tolerance develops. Those receptors that go away go inside the cell and they either sit in the cell or they get, some of them get degraded, but many of them are available, still whole and intact inside the cell, but you can't use them because the drug is only on the outside of the cell. And this drug does not cause that to happen. This drug does not cause the loss of receptors on the cell surface. And some evidence says it even signals inside the cell and says to the cell, hey, I know you've got receptors in there that are sitting in there. It's safe. They can come back out to the cell surface and, and we can be whole again. And we can actually push people backwards so they have the same number of receptors they had before they were ever put on opiates. And this is why over time with this drug, dose tends to go down over time because their receptors tend to repopulate back to a very, very sensitive level. It's really a fascinating, fascinating, we could talk all afternoon about it, um, but it's revolutionized the way we can take care of those patients that are on very high doses of opiates and, you know, are struggling and are having all of these problems and are on a lot of drug with a high amount of risk, but not very much benefit. When so, we transition them over, many of them um, just go on to be absolutely much, much, much more highly functional. Well, that's very encouraging. That is actually a little glimmer of hope, a piece of good news, which, um, you know, we've kind of painted a bleak picture so far. Um, and so it's nice to have some something positive to hear. What about the use of naltrexone? Do you use that with right. buprenorphine or... With, or so, by itself, or how does that work when you're nal managing pain? Naltrexone is a fascinating drug. It is an anti-opiate, okay? So it is uh, a drug that will put you into withdrawal if you have an opiate in the body. So, and it has no role in pain whatsoever at the prescribed dose of 50 milligrams. That's the only sized pill it comes in. 50 milligrams. It is useful for helping people remain abstinent who don't want to use opiates and may, maybe have the disease of addiction. And I want to be clear, we haven't been taught, we've talked about dependence. Addiction is something completely different. Another topic, another day. Um, but if you're having trouble not using opiates, naltrexone can block the effect of those opiates so that nothing happens and hopefully helps you do that. It's also cuts down on alcohol cravings and all of that is well and good, but it's been discovered that at 50 milligrams, while this drug does nothing for pain at a teeny tiny dose of somewhere between one and a half milligrams and four and a half milligrams, this drug is phenomenal for pain. And the mechanism of this is still hotly debated amongst people like me at conferences. Um, but you have to have this drug specially made because it doesn't 
come in this dose, right? This is the problem. It comes in 50 milligrams, isn't going to help you at all. So um, physicians can go and have drugs made for them by a compounding pharmacy, a pharmacy that actually makes the drug, doesn't just put it in a bottle, and we can have it made to whatever we want. And so we use what's called low-dose naltrexone um, to treat pain that we've been unsuccessful with other things. Um, and in some patients, it's remarkably effective. Hmm. And we could speculate all day long about why that is. Is it because this drug binds at a few of the opiate receptors, but it doesn't activate those receptors. And this signals to the body, hey, there aren't enough opiate receptors going on because a bunch of them are blocked and nothing's happening. So I'm going to make more endorphins to try to overcome this. So it may be that it these drugs are actually allowing you to make your own opiates. Endorphins are our, the opiates that we make that make us feel good. So that's one mechanism. Other people speculate that it has an immune effect and that immune effect is somehow changing the way the immune system behaves and that's helping with pain. We really don't know. We just don't know. But it's at 50 milligrams is an incredibly safe drug, no withdrawal effect, no physical dependence, nothing. You take it once a day, you take it at usually at night. Um, and it can have a pretty remarkable effect. It's also being used in uh, by our dermatologists for certain very unusual dermatologic conditions. It's being used by rheumatologists for uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, some of the inflammatory bowel, um, by GI, excuse me, for those, and by rheumatologists for juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. There's some evidence for it. And some oncologists it, are actually as a microdose, starting to use this. Not as, as a microdose, always as a microdose. One to five milligrams. And, you know, it's, it's uh, more will be revealed is all I can say about it. But we're very excited and we, there, there's evidence for using it in pain. But because this is far and away, we believe the safest option we have, we're willing to use this drug in selected patients without, you know, standard FDA approval and randomized controlled trials and and lots and lots of evidence because it's an incredibly safe drug and when it works it's certainly one of the easiest regimens for patients to tolerate. That is so interesting. Now do you use naltrexone in combination with buprenorphine ever or are they really kind of kept No, you, the buprenorphine in the form of the drug called suboxone is formulated with naloxone in it which is a similar but different drug. So uh. naloxone is also an anti-opiate, an opiate antagonist, but it is not absorbed into the body unless it's injected or taken nasally. So when you put that drug, when, so people get confused about this because suboxone is buprenorphine plus naloxone, but that naloxone is there as a self-destruct mechanism on the drug itself. If you were to take that buprenorphine and inject it, um, then the naloxone would block it. it would, you would get nothing. That is and so, so that's why it's there. And it probably, naloxone should truthfully probably be in all opiates, right? So that you can only take the drug orally, or in the case of buprenorphine, sublingually, it goes under the tongue. But the naloxone passes for the most part out of the body 
without ever being absorbed when it's taken in that ro- right. in that route. You are now, Trexone, by by contrast, is orally absorbed. That's the right, difference. Right. One of the differences no, between again, those again, two drugs. It's yeah. fascinating. What a wealth of knowledge you are. Now, I wonder. Um, I can't resist asking my uh, uh, or, or endeavoring to understand things. I'm curious about. Like, could there be when with orally administered opiates or um, naloxone, an effect on the gut? Because we, you know, the more we learn about the gut and especially gut flora um, and the, the portion of the nervous system that resides within the gut, could there be a mechanism related to opiate effect on the gut that is translated into efficacy or side effects or unintended consequences otherwise? Very good question. Um, there is a drug with FDA approval called methyl naltrexone that is a form of naltrexone that isn't absorbed out of the gut at all. And so we use that. That actually has FDA approval for the treatment of opiate-induced constipation if it's severe. And oh. you can use this drug, and it's, um, it blocks the opiate receptors in the gut, which helps control the constipation that comes with opiate use. So you're 100% right. You, there are ways to leverage the, the way these drugs are absorbed so that you can get a, an effect on the body in one place and maybe even the anti-effect in another place, hmm. right? So you wouldn't want the naltrexone. You, you couldn't use naltrexone because it is absorbed into the bloodstream that will interfere with opiates. But if you need to use opiates and you have severe constipation that is refractory to everything else, methyl naltrexone will stay where it in the gut and only go to the gut. And you can have opiate in the outside the gut and anti-opiate inside the gut. Okay. So I thought you were just going to say no, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never say no. All right. There's uh, always something to I'm, talk I'm about. I'm going to push harder then. Do bacteria like the bacteria in your gut have opiate receptors? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, it's a there fascinating it question because, um, what one thing that we do know uh, and I'm actually just reviewing a grant that somebody's applying for now that wants to sort of look at this question. In people who use opiates daily, they tend to crave sugar. And one, according to one paper, may get up to 30% of their daily calories from sugar or simple carbohydrates. And the question is, why is this? Why is this? And is it because they've the flora has changed and in other words one of the things that uh our microbiome the bacteria that live in the gut can do is signal to our brain what it wants us to eat so is it is the opiate changing the microbiome is that how this is working is the um is the fact that the dopamine system gets kind of messed up when you take something that constantly causes euphoria a problem and that sugar produces dopamine and that's the mechanism. I don't, I think we, we don't know a hundred percent or I don't know a hundred percent, but it's certainly, you know, this is an area that yeah, would it, be fascinating to do more research in. It's such an interesting question. Like when did the opiate receptor come to be evolutionarily? Did it come to be in mammalian species or did it come to be in, 
and more primitive well, uh, forms of life or even in single cell creatures or even right. in prokaryotes, the most primitive um, form of single cell You know, it's, it's well conserved, you know, across mammals. And, and I'm sure it's present in other animals. I'm trying to think, you know, from a, a veterinary situations, like, but all of the veterinary uh, situations that I've been involved in have all been on mammals. So it's like, well, do we give birds opiates? Like, do they have opiate receptors? You know, if they're in pain, do we give them pain medication? Um, I don't know. This is a... Uh, uh, yeah. I'm adding this to the list of things I need to look up and get back well, to you get on. your Petri dishes out. Over, over Thanksgiving, <laughs> right. I'm sure I'll have all these answers for you. Isn't that interesting? I could talk to you forever about these things. But did you know we don't have forever? Unfortunately, we're going to have to save do. something for a future episode. I wonder, Dr. Rubenstein, where can people get a hold of you, follow your work, Right. How can they continue to benefit um, from your expertise? Um, so I work um, at Kaiser Permanente in Santa Rosa, California. You can uh, find me on Twitter at Rubenstein MD. Um, and that's R-U-B-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Uh, little tricky spelling there of my last name. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, I can put my... Uh, email address in the show notes of this, if you want, and people Sweet. can reach out to me that way. Although you need to know that unless you're a member of Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, I can't see you as a patient. So I, you know, Kaiser Permanente is a closed system. Um, but I'm happy to uh, engage with people on Twitter. If that is, uh, if that, if that's something, if you have questions or something, that's I'm happy awesome. to work that, that is, way. That is very generous of you. I'm Dr. Bruce Crawford, board certified urogynecologist. This has been Life Before Medicine. We're so fortunate to have had Dr. Andrea Rubenstein with us today, sharing her expertise on chronic pain. I'm sure we'll have her back on future episodes. But in the meantime, join us next week. We have so much coming for you. We'll stay in touch. You stay in touch too. Thanks very much.